Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Visa Vidasami. This was a really great interview. It taught me a lot about myself and a lot about Singapore. And it's so interesting, the connection between Singapore and the rest of the world. It's such a big city for trading. Um, and it's really a cultural experiment as well. And so it was really great to go into the interesting connections between Singapore culture, world culture, technology culture, Twitter culture, all of this different stuff, even Burning Man culture. I really enjoyed this interview. Hope you do too. If you did, please find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Send me a DM about what your thoughts on this episode are. I really want to find out how people are benefiting from this content that I'm creating, benefiting the, the, from the guests that I'm bringing on the show. So find me at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I on Twitter. And if you really like this episode, please find us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. Thank you. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom podcast. My guest here is Visa Virasamy. Uh, he is in Singapore and he's a marketing consultant, but that's not who he really is. Uh, he just does that to pay the bills. Uh, he in, in his personal life, he's also an essayist and he's working on a process, per, personal project um, for writing called 1000 Word Vomit where he writes a million words and at a thousand words each. Uh, so I'm really excited to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Stuart. Yeah. So that's really cool. I, and just before we started recording, you were telling me a little bit more about this project on the essay, essay thing. What, what, can you tell people more about it? All right. Okay. So for some backstory, um, I've always been writing online. So when I was a child, I was a library nerd. You know, I discovered the library and it was like, whoa, this, you know, every book is a portal into another universe. And then when I discovered the internet, it was like, holy shit, the internet is like a mega library that I can directly contribute to. And so I have, you know, from the time I was seven or eight years old, I wanted to have my own website. I wanted to I didn't even know what I was going to do. I just knew that I wanted to participate in the mega library. And so I started out um, with my own website. I had a few friends who had blogs, so I would blog as well. And back then, blogging was just, it was like Facebook status updates. It was just, oh, I went to school today. And then, um, you know, we played video games. And then we saw this and we saw that. And I just kept doing that. And along the way, I stumbled onto like... Um, there was like a Singaporean local live journal community that I kind of stumbled into. And I was like, oh, cool. There's like other people like me from where I'm from and they're all writing about things of interest. And so one of my first posts was just kind of a, a social commentary post. Like, hey guys, um, well, like, you know, we're from Singapore and, you know, everything's nice, but, you know, we're also kind of, uh, we're not very friendly. Can we be more friendly? You know, they're kind of very... Um, idealistic young man uh, blog post and I got like 10 comments which blew my mind because at the time when I was blogging it was like one of my friends would comment maybe and it'd be like oh I saw you today that kind of thing and here I, I wrote something about you know society and I got like uh, 10 comments and so I that I wanted to do more of that so I kept doing that I was writing more and more um, blog posts about you know about the news and about what I was seeing and so I just, I, I kind of just grew into becoming kind of an online person, like a person who's just publishing content, writing about whatever. 
And yeah, so, you know, when Quora came around, I was very into that and I would answer a lot of questions and uh, I became like a Quora so-called top writer, which is a accolade that they give out to people who post a lot. And yeah, and I posted on Facebook, Twitter. And so re- like in the recent years, my Twitter has been taking off. I've got like 12,000 followers now, which is crazy from all over the world. And the reputation that I have built, I think um, people know me as one, I'm, I'm very prolific with my Twitter threads. And two, that I am a very friendly person who's always trying to make more friends. To me, these things are like self-evident. Like as a library nerd, right? I always felt that, you know, every book is written by someone who cares about their readers. And I just kind of had that sort of a background assumption of what correspondence is supposed to be like. So, you know, even books are written as correspondence. And yeah, so it's on the right, let's friends, make new friends. It's always been, another story I sometimes tell is like, you know, there's, you can almost imagine this archetypical, archety- archetypal, sorry, archetypal image of like this child playing with a, with a ham radio, you know, where you can kind of tweak around with the hams and then you accidentally connect to like a, a captain of a ship and, the sh- and, and you say, hey, call sign 105, I am, do you read me? And then the captain of the ship is like, hey, this is the captain of so-and-so enterprise and uh, we read you. And then the kid's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of this global network and I'm participating. And yeah, I kind of had that experience, my version of that experience, like just posting online on Twitter, on my blog, wherever. And there are other friendly, smart, highly accomplished people, people, CEOs and PhDs and, and just people all over the world who are willing to chat with you if you are friendly and nerdy. <laughs> and so for me, that is just me doing what I've always been doing. But interestingly, I guess it's not nearly as, as, I mean, I have one data point, which is me, but it turns out that not everybody does that. And when people see me doing that, they seem to respond very positively to it. They see it as something that is nourishing, something that is wholesome. And like some people, many people have told me over the years that them watching me do it has made them want to do it as well or do their version of it. And so increasingly, this has become kind of a, a mission even. Like, you know, if you look at like broad statistics culturally, like we live in times where people are reporting loneliness at very high levels. And, you know, I, I was a fairly, you know, I've, I've never been like um, a social outcast altogether or like been terrible with social skills or anything like that. But I've always felt somewhat lonely. I think I've always been drawn to the library, for example, because... Um, you know, my, my siblings were much older than I was. So like we didn't, like they, when I wanted to play, they were like already adults and stuff. So I was always looking for connection. I was always looking for people to interact with. And so like the library and then the internet and then just my network of correspondence became something that just meant a lot to me and, and is something that I'm very passionate about. And it's my way of finding belonging. It's a way of finding community. And so all these things, for me, it's, it's almost about survival. And I mean, in, in the beginning, it was kind of, you know, I was desperately reaching out to connect with anybody and, and I've gotten good at it. And people tell me all the time that they, they wish that they were good at it. And so I try to teach other people how to do it, but I don't want to fall into like a trap of being kind of like, oh, I, I, I'm the teacher and you are the student. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a just like, um, I, I, I so-called teach by, by example. I just, I just play, I just have fun and people kind of copy what works for them 
That's cool. Uh, so a lot, a lot was brought up there. There's a few things we could go into. Uh, one is the rise of a global network mediated by the internet of people all over the world who can share and connect, not necessarily in person, which kind of goes into the second, which is what are the differences between doing what you're doing online and offline, like in real life? Do you have any experience of doing a similar thing uh, in real life where you're see a stranger who you want to connect with. I'm sure in Singapore, this, I don't know what the mm -hmm. culture there is like in terms of talking to strangers, right. but, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, I wonder, cause a friend of mine and I recently interviewed this friend, he teaches people here in San Francisco how to go up to strangers and start a conversation with them. Um, right. so I wonder, uh, I wonder what's of interest to you to talk to about. That's a good question. So I actually visited San Francisco in May this year and it was a wonderful experience. People were so nice. And, um, so I would say the culture in Singapore, if you're a local, is uh, it's not super stranger friendly. I think in I think it's pretty in sharp contrast with uh, like the, the the kind of average amount of interaction that people expect from strangers is just across the bar. It's lower than it would be uh, in the states. And I know the states is a huge place, and you know, so my experience was like LA and and San Fran, California. You know, so that's probably not representative of the whole of the US but from what I've heard and what I've seen I think just in general um, people make more small talk in the states everywhere from what I've heard compared to Singapore so, like in Singapore you're kind of expected to mind your own business I guess mm. and um, so I very seldom strike up random conversation with strangers in Singapore um, I do make friends with friends of friends um, so the funny thing for me is that my experience in San Francisco was so wonderful for me. And it's not, I mean, I don't know if there's anything specific about San Francisco per se. It's just, for me, it was traveling across the whole planet, with the other world. And, you know, it was, I was on holiday. And it was kind of a slightly, almost semi-spiritual experience for me. Like just in the sense of taking a really long journey, right? Like going somewhere on us alone. And it was, you know, it, it felt like a, a big journey for me. So it was very momentous, momentous. And so um, I was in the mood to kind of, you know, in a very open and friendly mood and eager to chat with everybody. So even when I was buying like a sandwich for lunch, I would chat up the, the guy selling the sandwiches, which having had that experience, I now try to bring more of that into my social experiences back home as well, which is, you know, so if, you got, if you're going to work and you're commuting to work, it's like, it's different from like vacation mindset, right? Like vacation mindset, everyone on vacation is extra friendly. But I try to do more of that um, back home now. And I do think that if you embody a certain openness and um, a non-neediness, so I think the thing that tends to make people feel wary and uncomfortable is if they sense that you want something from them. Like, uh, So the joke in Singapore is that if someone's uncommonly friendly to you and you don't know them, they're probably going to sell you insurance or sell you something. So the, the challenge is kind of to be friendly without you know, triggering that, that anti-salesperson defense. Um, but the other thing is as well is that, you know, um, the, and the, one of the reasons I enjoy the internet so much is that you can screen for shared interests and shared values. Whereas with a complete stranger, you don't really know whether you have anything in common. But you can, you know, you can apply screening principles. So you can, let's say, you know, you can pick up dance or you can pick up CrossFit or you can pick up some interest where you know that you would meet other people with shared interests. And when you have that, I think it's much easier to socialize because you have that kind of starting point of shared things. I have a, so one of the things I do 
on the side is I have a, I have a t-shirt business on the side. And my co-founder, Desmond, he is passionate about parkour, like the movement and, done, and running and jumping and stuff. And he has been telling me about his experiences, um, kind of trying to grow the parkour community in Singapore. And he has, and so the parkour community started in like France. And so he went to France to meet the founders and uh, he had like, he had his own kind of profound experiences there connecting with strangers around the world. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, been, it's been a common theme in my life. I find that um, since talking about this sort of thing and knowing people who've had this sort of experiences, it's almost like it, it compounds, like you draw more people towards you who have similar perspectives. And yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same, um, you know, we, our conversations point to the same kind of insights and the same kind of um, findings, which is that people are lonely and they are hungry for like deep, passionate intimacy with strange, with, uh, you know, with other people. And it's, you know, we, we all want it, but we're not very great at finding it or asking for it. And sometimes you'll encounter people who, are very willing to ask for it, but they're not very sensitive in making sure that they ask the right people and so they don't succeed and then they might get resentful that it, they, they might feel like, oh, I, I did my part and I'm so open, but the world around me is not responding, so screw the world. It's, you know. So there's all this nuance that um, I think a lot of people struggle with and yeah, I'm trying to get a better sense of just how all of this comes together and how we can kind of share the knowledge of how to do this because like when you do it, you, you know, it's wonderful. You can even introduce friends to each other and you can see like, so when I was in San Fran, for example, um, I have a bunch of Twitter friends who all know me, but they don't actually know each other, even though they live in the same city, some of them even like a couple of blocks from each other. And then, so when they, when, you know, I was kind of like the, the limited time offer, right? Like visas in town for two weeks and there's a couple of meetups, let's meet there. And everyone who shows up knows that they have me in common. So they can then like, you know, oh, how do you know Visa? How do you know Visa? And then so now some people are friends with each other who live near each other, but they were not friends before just because I happened to pass through. And to me, that's like, wow, I've created real um, like wealth in the world, right? Like some of them might end up dating. Some of them might end up being co-founders. And there's just real social capital that gets created by this sort of process. So I want to get even better at doing it. And I want to teach more people to do it. Um, by example if necessary and then let's see where that goes I'm pretty excited about it so that's very interesting the you said one thing about differences with most people and that's an interesting thing because a lot of times we see the world in terms of differences uh, right. like so you know we, I, could, I could come up with a whole bunch of differences uh, between me and you, you're in Singapore, I'm in yeah. San Francisco, it's day here, it's yeah. night there. Uh, it's yeah. like, you know, all these differences. But then it's all mm -hmm. based on my frame of awareness and frame of consciousness as well, because I could also highlight right. the similarities as well. We both are mm -hmm. awake right now. Uh, we're both yeah. uh, humans. Uh, we're both got a frontal cortex. We both got a body. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's mm -hmm. interesting because I can, I can, I, I go through this a lot. I mean, normally, I've, most people, I think, traditionally, because we are, have these minds which discriminate and kind of go in and, and separate and put into categories, we mostly tend to fall towards the, oh, I'm different than most other people. Uh, but that's right. just a choice, basically. It feels like a choice. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think, so, um, I think one thing that I am kind of, 
I don't know if I'm naturally inclined to do this or I've been conditioned to do it. I think probably more conditioned, but like, um, I have always, again, because I guess I always felt kind of lonely or kind of, um, just not, you know, so even in Singapore, I'm like, I'm in, I'm a Singaporean Tamil, I'm Indian, I'm a minority in majority Chinese Singapore. And this, and there, there are many ways in which I'm different. I'm left-handed, <laughs> right? I'm the youngest child in my family. Uh, I'm very tall for Singaporean. Like, there are many ways in which I'm just kind of different. And so, um, if I focused on the ways in which I'm different from other people, I would have like no friends, basically, because <laughs> I, I have uh, multiple ways in which I'm different. And so, I almost have no choice but to seek out similarities with people. And, you know, you start doing it kind of as a, as a bit of a coping mechanism or a survival mechanism. But then once you've done it for a while, like, like the rewards that you get, that you reap from the friendships that you build, they're so outsized that um, you just start to want to do it all the time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually always fascinated by Barack Obama's life. Like even if, you, even if you ignore the presidency entirely, like just talk about from when he was born as you know, a half white, half black kid in Hawaii. And then he moved to Indonesia where he would have been completely different from everybody else. And then, you know, he went to Harvard and, and like just throughout his life, he would have always been the weird looking kid with the weird name and, you know, who's different from everybody else. And, you know, my, my sense from reading his memoirs and, and just kind of looking him up is, and again, all this is just before the presidency, right? Um, just looking him up, it's almost like, he had to become a community manager slash uh, a just a charismatic person. It's almost like either either you have to find a way to bridge the divide between you and everybody else, or you will like drown, right? So it's like you have to you have to build your wings, right? So you you either be, become good enough at bridging the divide, or the 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 massive gulf between you and other people will practically kill you, right? You know, you know socially speaking. And yeah, so there, there are a few other people like this. Like this, I think Trevor Noah also comes to mind. Like his experience as a biracial kid in South Africa. There's this lady who used to work at Uber. Her name's uh, Bozoma St. John. So she's kind of similar. She was born, I think, in Ghana. I'm not entirely sure. And she, so she's like, she was born African, but she was raised in the States. And so even amongst Black Americans, for example, like she's not American Black. She's like African. And then when she goes back, they are like, oh, she's the girl from America. So she's always going to be a bit of an outsider. And then you can, see, you can see she's a very, very charismatic person who's very good at reaching across divides to bridge gaps. And it's almost ironic in a way that, um, you know, I, I think I said to a friend recently that it's funny that pr it's probably going to be the lonely kids that teach everybody else how to be less lonely because you had to develop all these skills that most people didn't have to develop growing up and so like um it's yeah you get it right and and and, and so right now the thing that i've been getting into a lot recently is reading up about southeast asian history and the interesting thing about southeast asian history is that um you know so it's a maritime it's a lot of small islands it's a it's a maritime region along a major global shipping route and so you know you'll find things like so indonesia used to be a hindu buddhist kingdom and so, like, their national airline uh, is called Garuda Airlines. And Garuda Airlines is, Garuda is actually, like, um, in Hinduism, it's Vishnu's, um, like, vehicle. Like, his, his, his um, buddy, friend vehicle. And it's just interesting. So, you have, this, you have this Muslim nation with 200 plus million people, but they have a national symbol that's Hindu. And it's just, it's very, um, it's very cosmopolitan in a way. It's very, it's, it's a lot of mixing. And, and the reason for that is just, like, you know, if you investigate the reasons, it's that 
it's almost a byproduct of maritime states because back then and like for like from 1400s to 1900s it's like if you're along like these major shipping routes you have merged from china from arabia from india all they come along these ways to trade they exchange religions worldviews cultural artifacts and so everything just gets very uh, mixed up and and messy and chaotic but it works and my sense is what happened to southeast asia because of global trade from shipping like hundreds of years ago is pretty much what is now happening to the entire world because of the internet and like cultural mashing and clashing but people are not yet but that's not what people are used to so people are many people are used to growing up in some relatively homogenous space where everyone's kind of the same culturally ideologically ethnically and so people are not well prepared for the coming cultural conflict and clashes and you know sometimes i i tell people that all of the conflict that we've seen for so far it's just like season 1 and season 2 and like season 3 is going to be even crazier because you know there's still like 4 billion people who are not super online yet and they're going to come online and so you know everything that we talk about regarding uh, cultural appropriation or just all of those kind of messy things that people discuss it's just the beginning it's going to get way more hectic and so it's it's like a playground with people from very very different cultures and you know they're going to try to play together but they're going to end up miscommunicating and hurting each other and so it's going to be super important that we have kind of these cultural mediators and inter- intermediaries who can like translate kind of and and kind of help people like mediate their conflicts and stuff and so when i think about that you know it's it's pretty exciting to consider the vast amount of cultural exchange that's going to happen it's also a little bit scary and a little bit worrying because you know there's also like extremism and 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 violence and all those things but you know uh, we live in the most exciting time in human history and also this maybe the scariest we don't know yet but yeah you get it well that's the interesting thing about fear is that fear is not necessarily a representation of what reality is so what mm-hmm. i see is that a lot of people are afraid right now but it might not be for reasons that are actually dangerous uh and there's yeah. you know, there's an evolutionary reason for this because the right. ones who survived are the ones who mm-hmm. reacted to fear as if it were real uh and yeah. so we've all got this amygdala in our heads that yeah. is reacting to everything as if it were a threat particularly in cases yeah. of trauma where where there's trauma um right so that's really interesting as you're talking about that i i thought about it in my own life and it's really interesting i can't pinpoint oh no now i can pinpoint it okay so i um i grew up in a suburb in of san francisco i it was kind of diverse it was kind of diverse you know i had um there were a lot of people from india there were a lot of people from uh asia from east asia uh but second generation third generation a lot of latinos uh uh not many black people um and so I did have this kind of diversity growing up and then TV I guess the the culture that I was born into was also kind of liberal so more multicultural mm-hmm. I was close to San Francisco which was much more diverse the bay area is diverse uh right. and then uh but thinking about it and then I and then I look at what's called second culture kids like what you're talking about Trevor Noah and Barack Obama who basically are born mm-hmm. into two different cultures right uh and and it's funny cuz then i spent most of my 20s living in other countries and i was like really interested in in 
in being in another country and being in a totally different environment and learning the language. And I was drawn to this type of um, just like, I don't, but I don't know why. I don't know why I have that in me. Cause most people when they're in that, and maybe that's because I didn't grow up in a homogenous environment. So I did have this kind of like, and I was definitely conditioned by, by my society and by my parents to, to like um, seek out differences and culture and all this different stuff. Nice. Yeah. Um, Where did you go? Uh, everywhere. So, oh, oh, that gets into the next point. Uh, uh, so I lived in, I lived in, in Bangkok and in, in Thailand for, nice. for almost two years. Uh, I learned the language and I studied the history and it's a really interesting history. And you were talking from the 14th, yeah. 14th century to the 19th century. It's even really, it's not, I don't want to say it's more interesting, but it is also very interesting. The, uh, the, the, how those cultures were, changed by demography so in in thailand and indonesia a lot of that even singapore a lot of the a lot of the societies there grew up in a place where fishing was totally you could get all of your needs met by fishing and you'd live on the beach uh and then whenever an invader would come you didn't have any there were no like there were no set structures so they would just pick up camp move into the forest until the invaders uh, came in and took everything and then you go back into the back to the beach and and so what i found was that festivals became a huge part of important life so people would party a lot um yeah and, and like partying became a, a, a having festivals and having these kind of things became a huge part of the culture which still is today like i remember in thailand there's yeah. like festivals everywhere all the time uh mm-hmm. and uh so that's really interesting uh, what do you yeah. think about that? yeah it's um i don't know if i would specifically comment on that in detail but just um just knowing that different peoples have different cultures and different norms and, and stuff like that, it's, it's very, um, it's liberating in a way too, because you get to see, you get to start to see what are the ways in which your own culture is um, unique. So, you know, it's like the, the fish in water thing, right? So like there's a quote, I think it's David Foster Wallace mentions this in his commencement speech where he talks about, like an old fish goes to the new fish and it's like, hey, young fish, how's the water? And then he goes off. And then one young fish turns to the next young fish. It's like, what's water? Because it never occurs to them to question the thing that they can't see, that they just take for granted. And yeah, so, you know, um, one, when I came back from San Fran, from California, one of my friends asked me, a Singaporean friend asked me, so what's it like there? What's your first impression? How do you kind of uh, summarize everything? And I, I, I don't know why, but like just the thing that I said to him was, you know, it's funny, these, the first thing I would tell you is to, to kind of give you a sense, and it's what I would say to him, so I don't know if it's relevant to anybody else, but what I said to him was, like, these people have never been, like, invaded or colonized before. Like, you can, you can feel it. It's like, um, because if you've been around Southeast Asia and South Asia, if you've been to Singapore, so in Singapore, it's very, very strong. You can feel that, you know, and very often if you read um, kind of uh, Western takes on Singapore, for example, they tell you, "Oh, it's so it's so cold, it's so sterile and creepy, and and um, like this, it's boring, and and people have no culture and whatnot." And and like this, I mean, fair enough, it's 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 fairly true. And but like you seldom see a deeper investigation into why that is. And it's not like a group of people just woke up one day and like we're gonna be boring as fuck for the hell of it. Right? <laughs> it's it's it was a response to kind of post-war trauma and and I guess again they don't talk about that trauma explicitly very much, so it's it's not super obvious but if you live here you know from young you're, you're, it's, you're, you're reminded that oh Singapore is a very fragile place that's why we have to have military service 
and that's why you know we have all these policies and, and all these things and which is which is fine i mean it's it's just a way of being and there's no one fixed correct way of being like you have to be the way you are based on your circumstances and whatnot but stepping away from that gets you to come back with fresh eyes and go oh wait like you know like i met people like so for example uh i remember seeing uh when I was taking the bat, I remember seeing like there's ads for like, I think there was some, maybe a pride festival or something. And just, there's just ads of uh, homosexual couples kissing and it's beautiful. And I was just thinking, you know, like that would be so out of place in Singapore. Like Singapore is still pretty, unfortunately still pretty homophobic. And you know, so like I, I'm me and my, my, my friends and, and the people I hang out with, they're pretty liberal and they're pretty, you know, they're like, when are we going to, get done with these archaic old laws and stuff but like just just seeing it in or even just walking around like uh castro and seeing all the rainbow flags and it's like i mean i'm guessing if you grow up around san fran it's like oh yeah that's just down down the street yeah but if you're in singapore and you and you kind of grow up hearing like whispers that oh you know gay is bad immoral and stuff and then you go there and you see people just hanging out oh and another thing i remember i went to dolores park on like a saturday i think to meet friends and there were like children, I mean, not many children, there's very few children, but there were like dogs running and playing and people were just smoking weed in the open, which is illegal in Singapore. And so like when I sat there and like I smelled the weed, I mean, and I was like, holy shit, like what are you guys doing? Like, are you going to get like, and was, I'm like, oh, all right, it's legal here. And it's just, just experiencing that, that thing. And then it gets you wondering like, you know, why are we so uptight back home about a thing that when you look around, it looks so family friendly and happy. And it's just, it, it gets you seeing how practically everything, and I mean, and for something that's on the flip side, um, practically everywhere in Southeast Asia, so in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Bangkok, everywhere, like the, the trains are great. And like the butt in comparison is very sad. It, it's like a, I told another friend, it's like, it's almost like a, you know, in, in the Avengers, the last movie, like this dep- Thor gets depressed and he gets fat and he's eating Cheetos. It's like, there's like that depressed Thor energy to the butt. <laughs> like, it's just, it's the, it's one of the richest cities in the world, with billionaires, but the public transport is so sad. And I, I spoke to a couple of friends about it and they were telling me like, oh, you know, because like governance in SF is complicated because there's all these many, many different factions and all those things. And it's just, you know, like I would say just as much if someone's only ever been in San Francisco and they've only ever seen the butt, like they should go to, you know, Tokyo or Bangkok and see the trains there. Just, just, just to see it. Not even, not even to have a, not even to pick up like a political argument or anything like that, but just to witness that, oh wow, a completely different way of being is possible. And that just gets you sitting and thinking like, oh wow, like everything I know is so constrained by context. And that, that, was the, that was a very interesting thing growing up in San Francisco because I grew up in a culture that was uh, highly liberal. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you belong to a part of Singapore that is, that is like the uh, outstream, the, not the mainstream, uh, which is liberal. Uh, and then I grew up in a place where the mainstream was liberal and where the mainstream right. was contrary to the rest of the world. Um, right. uh, in terms of their openness to homosexuality, openness to, to psychedelics, openness to all these different things, free love, all these different things. So that was the, the, and then I went and lived in other countries and I noticed that the world was not the way that the, <laughs> the, the, was not the same way and not at all what I got from the impression that I was living, growing up here in San Francisco, that was not what people told me the world was. Uh, uh, and so I learned, I learned about, uh, hopefully I learned about the way that the, the world 
really works, but none of us can really say that because none of us know yeah. how reality really works. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it was very interesting to, to go and spend a lot of times. So in some ways it made me more conservative. Um, uh, mm. uh, uh, and maybe that's a reaction to, to, to growing up in a liberal environment. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was really interesting. Um, yeah. There's another thing you said. Have you been to Burning Man? Sorry, I think my, my recording just kind of, my audio like skipped a little bit there. Have you, you been to so? Burning Man? Burning Man, no, not yet, but I would like to. I was invited actually, but I had like military obligations, which is unfortunate. <laughs> ah, but yeah, I would love to check it out. Um, so I see something really interesting happening. So this this liberal culture of San Francisco um, is created Burning Man. And then Burning Man is serving as a cultural creation or a cultural like innovation uh, center, which is then uh, mixing back into San Francisco, but then also going to urban centers around the world. Do many of your friends? Oh, yeah. Have many of your friends in Singapore been to Burning Man? Um, Probably like a handful. I know that there is like a a Burning Man-ish equivalent in Melbourne in Australia and they call it Melbourne. I have a friend who is like very involved in that and it's been cool to witness because like I see her Facebook and she used to be like this very um, kind of, I mean just like a like a very normal I mean she is normal I mean normal is a, is, is relative right but she's she's basically become way more colorful and, and vibrant in her expression and it's just very cool to witness it's like a flowering yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, and again, it's so this also ties back to just the whole internet culture thing, right? Like, uh, once upon a time, Burning Man might have been something that was almost obscure, like you whisper about it in secret, like, oh, there's this amazing thing happening in the desert, and we're gonna go. And now it's like this image, there's images of it online, and people halfway across the planet see it and they go, oh wow, we should do that as well, and then they come up with their own spin on it, which is pretty interesting. Hmm. How? would you say the Burning Man culture has affected the liberal culture that you hang out in, in Singapore? Huh. Um, not that, not, not significantly that I know of. I mean, okay. So first of all, drugs are still very illegal in Singapore. So Mm. any, um, people have, if you, if you ask around in private conversations, you will hear that people have experimented a little bit. But um, you're not going to hear any outward expressions of it just out of kind of um, safety concerns. Yep. And, um, but even so, you know, my sense is that Singaporeans, uh, so even very liberal Singaporeans, I think uh, to some, so again, like you have to, so to have those experiences, you have to leave Singapore and you have to go somewhere else. And very often, the people that I talk to who have been abroad have had like crazy experiences and stuff. They come back. They are still, there's still a part of them that's proud to be Singaporean in a way. And, and it's, it's a, it's a different kind of pride. It's not like the blind nationalist pride that you get from like, you know, like a elderly uncle who's never left his, his coffee shop. Who's just kind of, uh, screw other, other nationalities. They're kind of like, Oh, okay. I've been around the world and I realized that actually Singapore is so safe. It's so clean. It's so it's what we have here is actually precious and we should, you know, we should protect the good stuff while we experiment with other things. And so they tend to be 
there's a certain and you know Singapore is very very small so there are all these kind of little things that I don't know I haven't I haven't so there are I have met young people who are very ambitious I have met people who want to change the culture but there's still it's it's different in a, in in some ways it's uh I, I'm I can't entirely it's an interesting question. It's a, it's a question to, to reflect on and, and maybe write an essay about because it's, it's kind of a, it's non-obvious. It's not exactly, it's not obvious how it has impacted. So for me personally, for example, um, I would say that expanding my view of everything has made me more curious about history. It has made me take a longer view of everything so like um you know i have friends who are activists in singapore who are like um they're very passionate about you know they want to repeal unjust laws they want to kind of uh, make the society more liberal and stuff like, and they want to like kind of fight for political change which i am supportive of but i don't like so i am um, at the same time i almost see that as as a very um narrow frame which is you know pros and cons right because somebody needs to do the narrow like somebody needs to be lobbying and, and fighting the, the fight. But I, I personally see like there's, there are opportunities that people haven't even begun to consider. So for example, um, just me being on Twitter, for example, with like 12,000 followers around the world, like from, for thousands of my followers, I'm like the only window into Singapore that they have. So in a way, I almost perform, like Singapore is so small, like that I almost perform like a, like an ambassador kind of role in 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 that, and so that in in a way I am doing a kind of a kind of national service in, in in a in a sense, and and there are other things that we could do like that. I'm sure that people aren't even thinking about like just in terms. So you know, if you if you look at at Korea, Korea is like geniuses at doing like cultural exports, like K-pop, and they also do like food mm-hmm. exports and. This, 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 there are all these interesting things that you can do if you let go of your initial assumption, assumptions about what it means to, to serve your country or what it means to um, make a positive change, right? So, so I'm, what I'm getting, interested in that. What I'm getting from this is essentially activism through play. Um, mm-hmm. So no, no, exactly no, that. no uh, directed uh, activism, but uh, just kind of playing. And this is uh, very much what I, what I fall, fall into as well, is I'm just kind of playing all the time i'm aiming to play right. all the time and hopefully some sort of financial benefit comes from that as well uh but Same uh yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and and what i the sense that i get is you know if you're gonna walk kind of a walk a beaten path of activism um the the status quo knows how to fight back right mm-hmm. like so if i decide that i'm gonna become i'm gonna run for political office like the political establishment knows how to you know like discredit me or I mean, I make that sound very dramatic, but just, you know, like even just the everyday person who isn't a fan of what I'm doing will be able to resist through the tradition because I'm, I'm kind of fighting by traditional means. They can fight back with the traditional means. But if you're doing something different and strange and kind of not obviously this or that, then like people don't know how to fight back because they don't know what you're doing until it's almost too late, right? Like if you're, 
and I mean, even even doing tech startups and stuff is one way of doing that. You kind of you kind of fight the culture orthogonally, like so. You come up with uh, Uber or Instagram or something like that, and and people start using like millions of people use the product before anybody even begins to consider that. Oh wait, now taxi companies have to change, or now like the media landscape has to change and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it all it all starts with like this playful exploration. And that's happening right now with scooters, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I don't know. Is in, in Singapore are there scooters? Have they? There are scooters in Singapore. Yeah, so, so it's super common to have. Uh, well, we call them uh, mobility devices. That's like a. I mean, it's a. But it's scooters basically. Yeah, electric scooters. And and is it a company, a foreign company, or is it a Singaporean company? Ah, uh, I am. So I don't use them, so I'm not entirely sure. I I think there have been foreign companies. So like, it's it's a very messy space. So sometimes it's like a new company that comes in, and then there's like a whole bunch of these scooters, and then like. Six months later, they're all gone. And then, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I spoke to some guy about this, but I have forgotten. Well, that's, that that's, the, that's the point is that, is that like, because it happened in San Francisco. I'm pretty sure it happened in San Francisco first, where all of a sudden a company just came in and basically played and just put a whole bunch of scooters into the, in, all over the city. And people were throwing them into the street and it was just like chaos. Right. Uh, um, and, uh, and that was just like playing basically on the part of the company, you know, for financial financial gain. But, uh, but, um, and so it's really because Uber had, tr- had done that strategy, other company, Airbnb had done that strategy, but that was before government started to recognize what that right. strategy was. And now, and then the yeah. San Francisco government would fought back was like, no, 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 you are getting these scooters <laughs> out. Uh, and then, so right. they kicked out, they kicked out the scooters in San Francisco. The rest of the Bay area was still had all the scooters everywhere. Um, <laughs> but in San Francisco, they kicked them out and they said, okay, now only two operators are going to get the license. Uh, and so they That's licensed funny. it out. So governments are starting to fight back against the technology playbook, but what they're not recognizing is that technology is about to change again. Cause now uh, a lot of, a lot of the things we've become used to in terms of technology and the way that it affects our, uh, our, I, I think the next wave of technology is going to be very, very different. And it's going to have a lot to do with biology, uh, neural oh, hacking. Sure. Um, and then all of these kind of virtual things that are happening right now, like that, that are being opened up by these new mediums. So. Oh, right. So, and so for example, um, I have a Patreon, right? And I sell t-shirts online and, um, so people describe Singapore as, you know, one of the best places to do business because it's very easy to set up your business account and it's very easy to do your taxes and stuff like that. But like the nuances of figuring out like how to pay tax for like Patreon revenue and like online sales, like it's just, it's chaos. It's like, uh, and you know, so I, I have to serve the, like, if you're a Singaporean male, you have to serve in the military and then you have like um, a few weeks of, of like reservists where you have to go back again for a week. And so I had to do that last month. And then I was, so normally what you do, if you're working at a, at a, like a company, like an established company, like you would use your company's HR to figure out like how they're going to compensate you. But if you're like a solo operator like me, it's like, then you got to email them and be like, Hey guys, um, I'm a freelancer slash consultant slash I get money from Patreon. And like, so how are you going to make up like the shortfall in my income? And they're like, um, we need an official letter from your company, <laughs> my own company. So I'm going to write, dear so-and-so, please. You know, it's kind of all these funny, um, like weird, I mean, it's, it's legacy issues, I guess. So it's like, it's, it, the whole system is designed making a bunch of assumptions based on how people used to live. And like, that's just changing mm. crazily. Right. So, and that, and I wonder and, if there's yeah. a, I wonder if there's a point at which the change becomes too much. I mean, I think that's already happening. I think, I think a large degree of why 
and you alluded to this earlier, I think a large degree of, as to why a lot of these monoculture people who grew up in monocultures who have a lot of fear over what's happening is because they're now on these online social networks where they get access to things that are happening all over the world, but not in the way that CNN and other kind of news agencies used to show us, but in a way that yeah. where they see other people, um, uh, you know, other people kind of presenting these views that they find dangerous. And I wonder if there's a point at which it becomes too much um, and nobody can handle it. And, you know, I, I, I think you alluded to that with the season three type of thing as well um, yeah. that might be coming. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, even just earlier, I was scrolling through Twitter and so like Singapore's national news is the Straits Times and there was a Straits Times article. This is a silly article about like there's a taxi driver who posted a sticker of a fake taxi on his taxi, which is like a porn site. And like, so there's this news article on the Straits Times that has a tweet about that. And then like in the replies, they're like bots or whatever replying with pornographic videos in the... So like if you're, if you're scrolling through, you know, if you're following, if you're just some... Singaporean uncle who has never, you know, like 20 years of your life is 30 years of your life is just this very kind of um, sheltered media environment. And then you're just reading the news and like below the news, there's like porn. Like that's, it's just, uh, how do you, you know, I, I mean, I, I find it funny. You find it funny, but like, I'm guessing like, For them, um, it's just stressful. Like conservative yeah. moms are like, what is, what is this? Why am, why is my son reading the news and right below in the replies, there's boobs. How's that? How can that be allowed? And it's, it's like in Singapore, there's, there's a joke phrase, which is, uh, how can this be allowed? Which is just, you know, every time there's something, you know, somebody cheated somebody of money on a, like, you know, like a WeChat scam. Like somebody asked someone to buy gift cards or something. And then and people like moms will write into the, to the press saying, how can this be allowed? And you know, the, the underlying assumption there is that, you know, anything that you don't like can be controlled which is extremely not true anymore, like, in the way the world is. Like, you can't control search results. I mean, you know, it just, the, way, the number of, like, a, attack vectors, so as to speak, it's just, it's infinite. So there's always going to be some, like, you have to rethink your entire concept of uh, how you protect your kids, for example. And for people who, you know, so, like, grandma's wisdom is not relevant anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Which is scary to people who don't want, who have not had to think about these things from first principles. Uh, as we've been talking, it seems like the book, uh, have you heard of the book Factfulness? Uh, yes, Hans Rosling, right? Yeah, uh, really interesting book. And it, it's, it seems like this, it, it talks about a lot of the things we're talking about. And the main point you get from the book is that by all objective measures, we are way, way, right. way better off than, than we've ever been in the history of the world. But yet, right? yeah, because we've got this relative fear sense of like anything that's that's rel like you know relative status you know and the fear of you know now that i've got this this not only do i have news telling me all of the horrible things that are going on in the world which have always been happening we just didn't know about them we didn't have this awareness yeah now we've got social media which is which is uh doing it now we've got bots who are you know playing on that fear um right. but by all objective measures we're better off and the, right. one of the points he makes at the end of the book which is that uh, uh economic growth is moving people from there's four levels which we can measure measure growth logarithmic both of us are level four um you know we have the ability to afford external microphones we have the ability to and right, then right. but like a lot of people are moving from level one to level two meaning that they go right. from a place of like i can't uh, afford clean water i have to walk 10 miles to clean water uh to oh i right. can afford to 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 have clean water um and these very very basic things um 
and and so for those people, and now you gave a great point, which I haven't heard before, which is that they're about to come online as well, um, yeah. uh, and which is going to be really really interesting. And I, I would love to interview uh, people who are at level one, coming to level two, and just getting their first smartphone, and kind of interview yeah. how that right. looks for someone, because right. uh, it feels like it feels like what it would feel like to have someone be in the jungle the whole life and then come right yeah i was i was just gonna say it's almost like the digital equivalent of like making contact with an uncontacted tribe kind of right yeah in in a sense and and probably like in terms of their mental experience it's probably effectively the same thing like they've they've had like their entire worldview was my village you know like 10 kilometers out there's a hospital that's it and now like you know you might you get like for some of these people like again like I, i use porn as an example again but like for these people to access pornography is it it can blow their minds like literally like it might ruin their Dopamine. their yeah like you can't we, we we can't imagine because we've kind of like micro adjusted to it over our lifetimes but like if your whole life is is that and then suddenly you see these things it can i don't know man it's wild yeah. we're gonna we're in for some very wild times yeah, yeah. it's gonna get very interesting well, cool. So we got about five to 10 minutes left. And what I like to do at the end is, uh, you know, I've, we've been talking now for about 50 minutes and I kind of, I'm getting a sense of what your expertise is. And now I'm going to try to figure out what your expertise is. Um, mm-hmm. and then ask you a question based on how, what, what kind of from your expertise, what would be the most valuable thing you could get, uh, out to, to my listeners. Um, and right. it, it seems like you have a good way of describing culture. Um, it seems mm-hmm. like you have the pulse on a, on culture. And, um, so I guess the question would be, what would you suggest my listeners to do or understand about the coming cultural clash that the internet is enabling? Ooh, that's interesting. That's something I've been, I've been, that has been on my to-do list to kind of think about and I have been putting it off, I think, because it, it feels Nowadays. like a very big, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's nice to have a, have a like permission to explore it in a kind of impromptu sense. What should listeners do to prepare or to understand? Oh, um, let me give you, let me give you, know, you so, mm-hmm. uh, okay. so my, my audience is basically, they have one uh, foot in the hippie, hippie world and then they have one foot in the business world. Um, interesting mm-hmm. right um so my my i don't know if this is super recent but my shtick recently has been to look for historical examples because history you know so the interesting thing about history is there's a lot of it but there's also not a lot of it it's, it's kind of it's, it's slightly paradoxical in that you know there's there's only ten thousand years ish of the uh, twelve thousand thirteen thousand years of of meaningful human history and, you know, the number of lifespans that is, it's not that, it's like a few hundred. It's like, you know, we have all watched more television and read more books, like, than kind of history. And again, like a lot of history is nothing happened for 50 years or 100 years, right? So what I try to do is look for examples of um, just different times in which similar things were true. So I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, I was rereading... Um, I was going through my bookshelf and I found some stuff from uh, Albert Camus and he was the guy who wrote The Stranger and, and um, One Must Imagine Sisyphus uh, 
happy. My face is one must imagine Sisyphus lolling. But anyway, um, it's interesting to pay attention to the times that these people... So the, the time that it was of interest for me recently was uh, kind of post-World War One, pre-World War II, like that kind of time period. Or like during while World War One was going on, like this, there are actually accounts, and and again, so we 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 tell ourselves that we live in crazy times, but like we do have written accounts of what people are going through during World War One, during World War Two, mm. and like it was, it's crazy. It's like people really, some people are wondering if it, they were wondering if it was end times. Like, is is it like is the world gonna end? And like, uh, is this like a uh, you know like religious, uh, mm. literal kind of end of days, judgment day is coming and we are all going to repent for our sins. And some people are like saying, and you know, even like um, if I was reading about, I have a book about the, the Medici bankers in, in Florence in 1400s and they were, you know, the, the major event in Florence was that, oh, my lights just went off. The major event in Florence was that, um, like the Black Death. So like one in three, like almost one in three people died. So it's like a, almost a Thanos event, right? Like one in three people died and people were like, the streets are empty. Will we ever be happy again? You know, it's kind of, of things like that. And so I think um, I would recommend looking. So again, um, you know, if you've, if you've watched the uh, law of the rings and when the law of the rings came out, it was around like 2000 and uh, pre nine 11, I think, or like just around, I think I was like 16 ish. And you know, there's this part where, where Gandalf, where Sam is like, uh, oh, what horrible times we live in. And Gandalf is like, oh, um, it's not up to you what these times are. It's, what the, it's up to you how you choose to deal with them. And I remember when I was watching that, I was like, oh, that's so inspirational. But it didn't feel relevant at the time. At the mm-hmm. time, it was like, that's, that's, that's fantasy. That's cool. And now, when I, I think I rewatched it like last year. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, we, that, that's kind of what the author was trying to convey to us. And he was... I believe Tolkien was writing it on the back of World War Two and like fat and like um, Nazis and everything. And again, it's just it's interesting to and so even with history that you already know, it's interesting to revisit it with the current lens and to revisit it knowing that oh shit's gonna like we have been living in a the past like three decades I think like post Cold War, even with like nine eleven and like terrorism, it wasn't you know it was it was a tremendous event, but like generally the past 30 years i think have been pretty stable for most of us in like the you know in the uh, developed world right pretty stable pretty you know things are going all right and then like, you kind of I, I get the sense that we are due for some crazy shit and so i'm basically trying to i would encourage everybody to read history about crazy shit so that's, that's like the one-liner right like find find examples of crazy shit in history and read about what people thought and what people went through so read about and, and I mean you don't have, there's, I wouldn't point to a, a specific single thing in history so you can pick whatever's interesting to you so can you give some uh, and I always rec- can you give some examples of uh, books or recent things you've read you said the Medici book but I'm not sure you said it actually right. yeah so the book that I'm reading right now is called Medici Money it's about it's by Tim Parks and it's about banking metaphysics and art in wow. 15th century Florence and yeah, so that's just, um, it's about, listen, that's interesting to me just to see how, you know, so the, the crazy thing about the Medici times were that at the time, like banking was like a sin, like, like, like wealthy people worried that banking would mean that they would go to hell. Like they were really worried about that. And it's just, again, it's like, like what we talked about with, with like going from San Fran to Thailand or from Singapore to San Fran and like just experiencing that culture across space. 
it's also true across time and you can read about it. So you can read about mm. what people are worried about, what people were, were scared of. And just as travel kind of expands your mind, I think um, reading history expands your mind the same way. But you have to, you have to approach it kind of with curiosity. So you sh- it shouldn't be like, um, you know, I'm going to... I mean, I don't, I'm guessing your listeners probably would be would have the would take away the right message from it, which is to to try to empathize with the challenges that people face. And I think I think there is a there is a reassuring, liberating feeling just to know that people have struggled with horrific shit <laughs> in history, and they went on with their lives. Like they, you know, like um, I was reading, I think Carl Sagan's biography, and um, so he was like his his parents, I think, or his grandparents were like fleeing World War. One, I think. Oh no, World War Two. I don't know. They were fleeing a war, and you know they went for. They were like um, Jewish, and they went to the U.S. And it's just reading those stories about how people struggled to survive, how they needed to build relationships with with people around them, like all these kind of fundamental things. And yet, you know, they got married and they had kids, and and life still goes on. And I think, yeah, I think. And um, like just reading about like the suspicion people have towards each other. So if you read about like uh, during the Cold War and uh, McCarthyism and stuff like that, like again, you might know about it vaguely, but like if you go and look up news articles from the time and you look up like what were the, how was the mainstream media portraying stuff during that time, it can be pretty eye-opening. And the point of all of that is just to kind of, to give yourself some breathing room, I think. To not be caught up in, oh my god, culture war is happening, everything's going crazy, oh my god, like, and then you, you, you don't, uh, I'm, I remember that you mentioned you do breath work, so it's, you know, it's kind of, people get breathless, they're like, ah, everything's happening, so you have to kind of, like, if you're not going to die in the next 10 minutes, like, you have a moment to kind of step back and be like, okay, humanity has dealt with this stuff before, you can read about it, you can learn about it, and you can keep a cool, try to keep a cool head, I guess, while accepting that you can't control everything around you. Mm. So, it's it's almost you know like if if you're the poetic kind you can almost think of it as all right like you know if you if, like um in around the fight club era which is like 97 people were saying oh you know everything's so boring and then there's no trials for us and for, for young men anymore there's no initiation we're all just worker drones and now it's like okay like <laughs> the world has supplied us there's, there's gonna be <laughs> probably probably a climate crisis probably migration crisis there's gonna be all kinds of crazy shit so when that happens and you know even if you watch um like when there are floods and you can see how disaster people how people respond to do disaster relief there is there's something there um okay i would definitely recommend this book by uh sebastian younger called tribe uh so in tribe he talks about peacetime and wartime and how um you know just as while war is horrific it's also inspires courage and loyalty and 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 it has a lot of interesting bits about um just how people uh, bond in difficult times and it's a it's a quite a life affirming book i think i think when i when you read it you'll feel like ah oh, i want to do more for my community i want to do more for my friends i want to you know and if we have more people doing that i think we may be in a slightly better position to endure whatever comes Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And how can people find out more about you and uh, maybe find you on Twitter? Uh, you can just Google me, I guess. Uh, my, so my name is Visagan, V-I-S-A-K-A-N-V. Uh, if you just search that, you'll find my blog, my site, my Twitter, everything. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. I'm releasing episodes every day uh, because I've got so many in the backlog. So I'm really proud to bring all these great conversations to life. 
and hope you enjoy them. And if you do, please find us on iTunes by searching for uh, Crazy Wisdom or Spotify or Stitcher. We're on all of them by searching for Crazy Wisdom. And if you really like it, please leave us a review. And as always, you can send me a DM on Twitter at Stuart Allsop III. Thank you. Have a great day.